0: Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Big Deep, the Mining Podcast. And today's guest is no other than Rick Rule, ledger investor and speculator with forty-five years of uh, forty-five year career track record in commodities and, and resources space. I knows a thing or two about investments and commodity life cycles. Um, it's Rick's third time on the podcast, and I'm hoping to have him on here per- periodically to give his wealth of knowledge, wisdom, and humour around commodity investing and speculating. So let's get straight into this, and let's welcome Rick to the podcast. How are you doing, Rick?
1: I'm doing very well, and I appreciate you having me back on your show. I enjoy it.
0: No, and I appreciate you uh, taking your time up. I know you're a busy busy man, um, and obviously a lot of things have been happening just more recently with yourself. So I just wanted to give our audience an update on your position at the moment, as I understand that you're, you've given up your position as the president and CEO of Sprott, of Sprott Holdings, um, but I believe you're a director now. Um, so I just wonder what made you make that move um, and what you're getting involved in um, as I guess you're not retiring.
1: Well, that's true. The retirement for me is a, a redirection, but definitely a slowing down. I'm uh, lucky enough in my life that uh, for the balance of it, I'm gonna do what brings me pleasure Uh, and not what brings me aggravation. Uh, I'm 68 years of of age, and two of the things that were more aggravating than pleasurable to me were corporate administration uh, and regulated activities. Uh, I understand the need for regulation. I would just prefer not to be subjected to them myself. So I've given up regulated activities at Sprott, and I've given up anything that smacks of uh, corporate administration or management. I remain uh, a director of Sprott. I remain, I believe, the largest shareholder of Sprott. And I remain, I believe, uh, the largest private client of Sprott. So to say I'm not affiliated with Sprott probably uh, exaggerates the circumstance, but uh, I no longer am a spokesperson for the organization, uh, to my relief and probably to theirs.
0: Yeah, and how was your relationship with Eric? Now, obviously you've, you've built a strong relationship together. Um, how, how is your relationship with, with him? And since you now sort of slowly moving away?
1: Well, I've patterned a lot of my career for the last 40 years on Eric, uh, including when he fired himself and hired somebody to run his business uh, doing that. Uh, and then later being acquired by Eric. Now he has left Sprott. Uh, to manage his own money. And I'm doing the same. I suspect that our careers will grow closer again. Uh, Much of Eric's own wealth is managed in an extremely speculative manner, uh, which isn't probably appropriate to a firm that runs money for maws and paws like Sprott. I felt myself constrained with my own portfolio over the last 10 years, because I had to concern myself primarily with what was good for other speculators, not what was good for myself. I suspect that uh, Eric's uh, Eric's career and my career and our styles will converge again uh, now that we're uh, both uh, denizens of the free world.
0: Yeah, now I understand. Um, so I'm obviously you're aware of our audience are mainly mining professionals and also boots on the ground miners. Also, service providers to the industry as well as um, investors. So, I wonder if you can give our audience an update um, or an overview on commodity markets as a whole, um, and especially with the 10 year US Treasury rate gradually increasing. um, What impact do you think it will have on the commodities and the industry?
1: Uh, If the 10 year rate continues to increase, I think it will have a, a deleterious impact on the industry. Depending on the nature uh, of that increase and the nature of cost escalations within the mining business, in particular, you've seen an increase in the U.S. ten-year rate, the, the nominal rate, uh, impact the gold price. If you look back two and a half or three years, I would suggest that the increase in the gold price from 1,100 U.S. to 1,900 U.S. coincided very neatly with the interest rate on the U.S. 10 falling from. 250 basis points to 60 basis points. The increase from 60 basis points to 175 basis points coincides very nicely with the plateau and then the decline in gold prices. I realize that there are many uh, factors uh, in terms of the gold price, but I would argue that the most important of them is concern for ongoing purchasing power of savings instruments. And the world's most important savings instrument, the world's benchmark security, is the U.S. 10-year treasury. When the interest on the U.S. 10-year treasury rises, disintermediation senior mediation out of that product into products like gold uh, rises with it. So I, I think you'll find the gold price and gold equities to be extremely sensitive to the U.S. 10-year rate going forward. It's important to note, however, that it isn't just the nominal rate. It's the real rate. And if you look forward to a circumstance where uh, the depreciation of the currency measured by the CPI rate of inflation, uh, if that rose, uh, then uh, even uh, increases in the nominal U.S. interest rate couldn't keep gold under control. It's important, too, and I'm sorry to belabor this, but I I think it's an important question, I think it's important to note that if you look back at the history of the U.S. 10-year treasury, at least the history that I've been familiar with it over 45 years, uh, the mean real yield in the U.S. 10-year treasury, which is to say the the amount by which it has exceeded the rate of inflation, uh, at least for the last 30 years, not 40 years, but for the last 30 years has been between 150 and 200 basis points. Uh, if there was to be a real yield in the U.S. 10-year treasury that reverted to mean, uh, you would all of a sudden see the interest rate in the U.S. 10-year treasury at something like 3.5%, which I think would have startling implications for the broad economy uh, and not very pleasant ones. Uh, the other side of the equation is, of course, non-precious metals uh, into industrial materials. And I need to preface it by saying that I had expected industrial materials to be much weaker in the last year than they had been. I was concerned about the state of the broad economy worldwide, uh, concerned for two reasons. One, uh, we had been through a 10-year recovery in the period 2008 uh, to, you know, well, more than a 10-year recovery until the uh, COVID-induced decline. And I would have expected a, a, a much lar- longer uh, recovery period from that bull market, which is to say I would have expected that period of expansion to be met by a recession. And I expected, too, that the fallout from the COVID-19 on global economies would be more severe than it has been. I underestimated, uh, as I have for 40 years consistently, the impact of liquidity, quantitative easing, and the manipulation of interest rates by the central banks and their impact on both the economy and the market. But make no mistake, if the interest rate continues to rise, uh, and interest rates in other parts of the economy, uh, the US economy, at least like 30-year mortgage rates, consumer, consumer durable debt, uh, the prime interest rate, uh, which is to say the cost of capital for corporate America, and importantly, the refunding rate for federal, state, and local governments uh, and governments around the world as they roll over the short-term debt, the impact uh, of those higher interest rates will be uh, interesting in the sense of the Chinese curse. uh, May you live in interesting times. Uh, Reducing, uh, I think, economic vitality. uh, We're due for a recession, frankly. Uh, Reducing, as a consequence, demand for raw materials. While at the same time, uh, raising the cost of capital in capital intensive businesses like mining, which is to say uh, a continued increase in interest rates uh, would not be good for any aspect of the resource business. I personally don't believe that the voters would stand for the economic reality of higher interest rates. I believe that the voters will continue to demand to be lied to. I think the voters will continue to demand quantitative easing, uh, which if the voters themselves did, it would be called uh, counterfeiting, pardon me. Uh, And I believe too, that they would like artificially low interest rates. Uh, whether or not the voters will get what they want is a different question. Uh, higher interest rates, I think would be very rough on the industry. I think ultimately would be very good for the world. Those are two different topics.
0: Yes, yeah, certainly. You mentioned recession. I don't want necessarily to, uh, for you to give any predictions, but what do you what are your thoughts around that? and <laughs> um, and not necessarily when, but at what time frame do you think? that things are really going to go belly up? Uh,
1: I don't know that they are. R- remember that I have been a skeptic for 40 years uh, about economic recoveries that are fueled by um, monetary measures, not by increases in productivity or increases in trade. The last expansion that I really liked was the expansion <laughs> in the early 90s, uh, which was fueled by the rise of China, uh, the lessening of economic nationalism and the increase in trade uh so i have always been a skeptic uh about economic strength the consequence of that is that i have absolutely accurately predicted at least 17 of the last three declines uh which is a fancy way of saying that my economic forecasting track record is almost unblemished by success and i wouldn't want to visit it on your listeners
0: yeah understand um how have you seen the junior market space in in sort of more recent times over the last sort sort of month or two, uh, with more private placements and more liquidity li- liquid entering the market, um, and with the Fed obviously debasing the currency?
1: I think, as a whole, uh, the junior market is insanely overvalued. Uh, I think if you looked at the um, universe list of listed juniors around the world, you know, AIM. Uh, Canada, Australia, there's probably, I don't know, 1,500 to 2,000 issuers. I suspect 150 are viable, uh, meaning that if you took the market as a whole, it's perpetually overpriced. Uh, I, I used to earn the real enmity of constituencies like your listeners by saying that if you merged every public junior in the world into one company, called it Junior ExplorCo, that company in a very good year would only lose $2 billion, and in a bad year, it would lose $5 billion. $5 billion. Uh, that overlooks the fact that the best of the best juniors, sort of 10 or 15% of the global issuers, generate so much wealth that they add legitimacy and even luster uh, to a business that uh, costs its owners, you know, three, four, five billion dollars a year. I have never seen a bull market like the one that we're in now, where market leadership went from the best of the best all the way to the juniors without following all the way down the value chain first. Uh, The fact that market leadership went from the Franco Nevadas uh, and the Wheatons all the way down to amalgamated moose pasture and consolidated orangutan uh, without stopping in the middle of the market is something that I've never seen before. Uh, Similarly, uh, I haven't seen a market last where uh, a newly minted IPO Uh, populated by butchers and bakers and candlestick makers, uh, has a pre-money valuation of $20 million and comes out oversubscribed. Uh, I've never seen a circumstance like this. Um, I'm delighted to see the air come out of some aspects of the junior market. And I'm delighted to see some actors in the junior market who have been serially successful, which is to say have track records, uh, raise capital at eye-popping prices, uh, I have absolute faith that the market will correct and I will be able to buy the juniors, the high quality juniors that raise capital at eye popping prices at uh, 50, 60% discounts to the money that was put in by the generalist geniuses uh, over the last three or four months.
0: Yeah. Um, what are the trigger points for even more institutional and retail investors' capital? entering the the commodities market, uh, whether that's in gold, silver, uranium or copper. Um, And what commodity do you see is the most um, undervalued at current prices?
1: The the catalysts vary Uh, in the context of precious metals. I think that you're going to need to see central bankers blink with regards to interest rates, which by the way, I think they'll do. Uh, I think if you see a circumstance where the U.S. 10-year treasury goes back below uh, 100 basis points, 1%, I think you'll see an explosion in precious metals prices and precious metals equities. Uh, When might that occur? Uh, I don't know. I don't even know if, uh, but I suspect that's what's going to happen. In industrial materials, for the most part, we're already over the incentive price, uh, I had anticipated $2.50 U.S. copper right now. Four is better than $2.50 uh, if you're an issuer, uh, and so that's going to happen. In the uranium market, which is probably my favorite commodity over the two or three-year time timeframe, uh, I think what you need to see, you're seeing right now, I think you need to see affirming in the term market. It's interesting that the junior uraniums are way ahead of themselves. Uh, relative to the spot price in uranium. And so the junior managers are doing a very smart thing. They're trading premium priced paper for cash and turning that paper into yellow cake, knowing that they can buy the yellow cake in the spot market now. And with the term market firming, uh, they can sign three or four year supply contracts uh, at some number like 45 to $50 a pound on uranium that they just took out of the market at $30 a pound. When you see either Cameco or Kazatomprom or Cameco and Kazatomprom begin to return uh, high quality projects to production, uh, if you take them at their word, you will know that they have been able to sign uh, term contracts for sufficient production from those mines at sufficient prices that they can earn a sufficient return on capital employed. At that point in time, you will know that the uranium market is back in earnest. And you will see, I think, pardon the pun, uh, an explosion in the higher quality juniors.
0: Yeah, um, with precious uh, metals mining companies experiencing free cash flows currently, and price, and obviously prices anticipating to go higher, um, maybe lower than higher. Um, why ha- why have the prices of gold and silver been suppressed? Um, And what are the the forces behind this? And how do you see it playing out for the rest of the year?
1: I'm not sure I understand the question. Are you talking about uh, the prices of precious metals mining equities or of the metals themselves?
0: Of the metals themselves and the spot market.
1: I I would argue that uh, market manipulation occurs but it occurs in a very short-term basis. I'm not one of those who believes that there has been a multi-decade effort to suppress gold and silver prices. My belief is that we've had a 40-year bull market in faith and credit, uh, which corresponds with a 40-year bear market in precious metals, because precious metals are an expression of doubt. uh, And the bond market is an expression of faith. Uh, I don't think that the powers that be, even were they capable, would have bothered to suppress the price of gold and silver because the market was doing a perfectly good job of that. I do believe, however, that markets are manipulated in the near term. Markets as big as the US treasure market and the LIBOR market have been proved to be manipulated, as have precious metals markets. And in particular, a market like silver, where on occasion, the daily trading in futures markets exceeds by 250 times, not percent, At times, the amount of silver available for good delivery means that for well-capitalized actors in the space, the ability to manipulate the market in the near term is astonishingly simple. Not that I know exactly how it's done, but I would suspect as an example that a well-capitalized entity, I won't name that entity or entities could ladder a long position into the futures markets, some at 90 days, some at 180 days, 360 days, 720 days, whatever it is, Uh, establishing a good position in a ladder uh, on a leveraged basis, of course, uh, and then borrow a reasonable amount of silver, 10 million bucks worth, 20 million bucks worth, dump it in the overnight market, Uh, where there weren't very many people available to buy it and by manipulating down the physical price of silver have an outsized impact uh, on the futures markets, thereby uh, more than making up uh, in their futures portfolio what they lost uh, in their physical portfolio. Uh, Were I able, uh, that's likely what I would do, I'm old enough, frankly, to remember a point in time in the 70s when uh, near-term precious metals futures markets were manipulated upwards in the same fashion. Uh, that goes back a long time. And of course, uh, my uh, suspicions about the lack of long-term manipulation, in the precious metals market will get both you and I lots of hate mail in the comment section associated with this interview, but remains my position. You will note that in that uh, position, uh, I'm very different from Eric Sprott, who I... Uh, you know, very much respect and different too from GATA, uh, whom I also respect for the incredible amount of information they've put up on their website. I just don't happen to believe it.
0: Yeah. Um, and talking about silver, especially with the, the, the recent silver squeeze, um, and there seems to be more evidence and wide awareness of the silver market manipulation. Um, what are the trigger points for, for silver to break out? Um, There also seems to be issues with physical delivery uh, of silver, uh, maybe just with retail investors. Um, So how do you think this is going to play out in the future?
1: I I need to tell you that in this circumstance, the remarks that you hear will be from Rick Rule, not Rick Rule of Sprott. Uh, Those are different points of view. Uh, I think you correctly pointed out that there has been a, a widespread shortage of silver available in retail quantities and denominations. This is partly because the demand that we've seen for physical silver in the last 12 months has been uh, by historic standards unprecedented. At the same time that COVID related shutdowns of refiners uh, uh, constricted the reminting uh, of wholesale material down into retail material. Um, If you would have asked me six or eight weeks ago Uh, If we were experiencing any difficulty in acquiring silver uh, in the wholesale level, I would have told you no. I believe, although I don't know, that Sprott has been the largest real buyer of physical silver in the world in the last 12 months uh, to satisfy our physical trusts. Uh, And uh, for a very, very, very long time, we encountered no problems doing that despite widespread reported shortages. It has become more challenging recently. Uh, Obtaining physical gold isn't a problem because physical gold is a high value relative to weight item. So if you are uh, running out of physical uh, in system material in New York or Chicago, you can fly it from Perth or Singapore uh, or Zurich. Silver is very different. When you are Sprott and you clean out what's available in Ottawa, and then you clean out what's available in Toronto, and then you clean out what's available in Chicago, and you start to clean out what's available in New York and Boston, it becomes expensive and cumbersome to ship the amounts of silver which we require for our silver trusts. And so it has become more difficult. Uh, Mercifully, we continue to be able to do it. You'll notice, and I would refer your listeners to our website for a better tailed view of this. But when uh, there are increases in AUM in the Sprott Physical Silver Trusts, we aren't allowed to take delivery receipts or deposit receipts. Uh, We have to take physical silver. Uh, And we have thus far uh, been able to accommodate demand for our units with physical silver. But it has become much less easy (laughs) than it was six weeks ago. I I need to say that uh, perhaps because we're such good customers the service that we have gotten from the desks of the big banks that are silver dealers has been uh, exemplary and we've been able to do that
0: with the silver price being half of its all time high what are going to be the triggers to make that sil- to make the silver price rise,
1: and, the rise price.
0: And, and rise in-, in a in a in a i suppose substantial way not just a few dollars here a few dollars there
1: I think one of two things could happen or both uh, an increase in the gold price. Uh, I've been now uh, through two precious metals bull markets, the one in the decade, the 70s and the one in the decade between 2000, and well, more than a decade, 2000, 2011. In both cases, gold led uh, because the gold buyer was first. The gold buyer was a fear buyer. When the momentum was established by gold, when the narrative was justified by the news, by the move in the gold price, then the silver buyer kicked in. Uh, silver traditionally is a middle of a bull market mover and an end of bull market mover. When it moves, traditionally, it's moved further and it's moved faster. And the most volatile of all precious metals investments, of course, is the high quality silver equities. Because the market capitalizations, the combined market capitalizations of the legitimate silver mining equities are so small, when the generalist money comes into that space, there just simply isn't sufficient market capitalization to contain it but these are mid-cycle and late-cycle moves. Uh, By my reckoning, the bull market that we're in now for precious metals began in 2018. That would suggest that this bull market is about four years old. So we're coming in to the middle of the market. I would suggest, not as a market technician, but rather as a market historian, uh, that after the cyclical decline that we're experiencing, uh, I believe we're in a secular bull market, uh, when gold moves again, uh, that, will be the key, that will be the cue for silver to move. Uh, I'm not talking about relative valuation, 16 to 1, anything like that. I'm only talking about investor behavior that I've observed over my career.
0: Okay. Um, as, as you know, I'm a recruiter, and obviously I speak to many candidates, and some of them are struggling to find jobs at the moment, um, obviously depending where they're, they're located around the world. Um, and this has probably happened over the last 12 months. Um, what are your views on some of the m activities that are happening um, and some of the in- companies' internal span- expansion plans um, and projects moving into bank feasibility and construction over the next 12 months or so? Uh,
1: yes and yes. I think you'll see more m and uh, I think MA was very constrained uh, because of the insane levels of M&A in the last decade and the idiotic capital deployments that the industry experienced, both in terms of new project construction, mergers and acquisitions in the last decade. You'll note that uh, when that market collapsed in 2011, 2012, uh, I've seen estimates that as many as 70% of the senior managers of senior mining companies were allowed to pursue other employment opportunities, which is to say fired by their shareholders. Uh, And that made their successors very much more cautious, very much more constrained. The gloves are starting to come off now. As you, uh, as you say, they're starting to see real free cash flow, and they're starting to see equity prices that incent them to raise equity and put it to work. Thus far, the m that we've seen in this cycle has been, by and large, uh, intelligent. It has either been strategic, with companies making tuck-in acquisitions in areas where they uh, already operate. Or at least accretive uh, on a per share basis, lowering the general and administrative expense relative to assets under management uh, and uh, relative to revenues. Both of which are a good thing. Uh, I think M and A continues uh, for both of those reasons, and also because for the last decade, the in, at least decade, the industry has underinvested in exploration and underinvested in development and all through the industry, when I sit in in quarterly conference calls, uh, everyone understands how constrained the industry's pipeline is. Uh, you cannot refill a pipeline with grassroots exploration uh, in under a decade. And many of these companies don't have a decade. They have reserve life indexes that are measured in seven years to nine years. Uh, they're gonna need to engage in MA to survive. We've also learned uh, uh, across every industry group, that larger, more liquid companies trade at higher uh, share price valuations, which means they have a lower cost of capital. And in a capital-intensive business, a lower cost of capital is definitely a definable business advantage. You are going to see, I think, uh, provided these precious metals prices hold, and more importantly, these copper and nickel prices hold, uh, you are going to see also uh, a resumption of the development pipeline. Uh, it takes $2 billion, $3 billion, $5 billion, $6 billion to build a new copper mine. Uh, at $2.50 copper, that wasn't available. Uh, at $4 copper, that's uh, increasingly available. And the combination of development stage projects being acquired and development stage projects uh, being built, uh, I, I think you're going to see a, a, a real renewal on a global basis in exploration, including grassroots exploration. You asked me earlier what could kick off the junior market. Tier one discoveries, Uh, the strength in the Australian market, the Australian junior market in the last three or four years has I think uh, even less to do with the gold price than it does with the fact that uh, beginning in 2015, uh, the Aussies came into a discovery cycle. Uh, which has generated some really spectacular results. And the market has stood up and te- took notice. Uh, I think that a resumption and exploration spending, particularly a resumption and exploration spending in areas where the investors have been loath to go, uh, which is to say the Tethian, as an example, uh, Africa, places where you can still make a tier one discovery. Uh, I think we're going to see some eye-popping discoveries this cycle. And I think we're going to see some eye-popping prices paid for them because the industry is out of development opportunities. And I think that that could kick off a real romp in the juniors, even from their current overbought levels.
0: Which is good to hear. i um, <laughs> got one question before we conclude. Um, out of all the commodities... at this this particular time, what would you say is the most undervalued commodity at the moment?
1: Uh, I would say uranium. Uh, The International Energy Agency suggests that the fully loaded cost to produce a pound of uranium, that includes cost of capital, exploration expenditures, prior year write downs, all that kind of stuff, uh, is in the US $50 to $60 a pound range. So the industry's making the stuff for 50, selling it for 30, losing 20 bucks a pound. And of course, being miners trying to make it up on volume. uh, This is an insanity. Uh, I think uh, probably potash and phosphate uh, begin to exhibit some discipline over time. uh, And I think they do well. But my suspicion is that the surest move to the upside uh, comes with the gold price, if I'm right about the fact that uh, voters worldwide, don't want to accept the uh, reality of market-based interest rates and can convince the legislators, which shouldn't be difficult, to continue to debase the currency.
0: understand. So concluding, um, I wonder if you can um, explain your offer of a complementary portfolio review. Um, uh-huh. And also, what are your important factors that you consider in to, to actually determine the ratings that you give out? Uh,
1: the latter is a very good question. Uh, My most important criterion, depending on the size of the company, big companies uh, is uh, net present value including probabilistic net present values. We try to construct a matrix of pricing scenarios, mostly around the forward strip and try and determine as well as we can the net present value of future cash flows. Uh, including development stage projects, and then discount it back and look at look for companies that are selling at a discount in terms of enterprise value to net present value. Uh, we look at a company's historic returns uh, on capital employed, which is to say um, their investment efficiency. Uh, we look at their aggregate debt levels uh, and we look at where they are in the global cost curve. Now, this means in a raging bull market, that our best-rated companies perform the worst. Because in a raging bull market, uh, arithmetic doesn't matter. Narrative does. uh, And we are not narrative-centric. In smaller companies, uh, we're looking really at people. Uh, We are looking at people where their skill sets conform nicely to the task at hand, which is to say, the fact that somebody has been successful operating a mine doesn't necessarily equip them to explore for mines. we look at people who have been successful in the past and we look at people who can describe accurately to us the process by which they add value, the process by which they answer unanswered questions. Uh, we look at, again, capital efficiency. Uh, as an example, we had an intern many years ago that uh, sampled 25 junior mining companies at random, uh, Canadian list to juniors. Uh, and uh, this intern found That the median percentage of capital raised that was spent on general and administrative expense exceeded 65%, which is to say 35% went in the ground. Kind of tough making money investing 35 cent dollars. So that's very important to us. Uh, The offer is very simple. Uh, Any of your listeners that go to a a website, sprottusa.com forward slash rankings, If they enter their natural resource portfolio, please no cannabis stocks, please no technology stocks. I personally will rank the companies one through 10, one being best, 10 being worst, and I will comment on issuers where I think my comments might have value. For uh, visitors who mention charts in the comment section, I'll include a a 100 year commodity chart, which talks about how cheap industrial materials are in the context of other investment categories going back 100 years. And I will include, too, the Barron's Gold Mining Index chart, which is, from my point of view, the most all-inclusive and longest-running gold equities index in the world. I don't include these out of any sort of pretense to being a technical analyst, but rather as visualization tools to understand how prior bull and bear markets have worked, which gives you some indication as to how the ones that I think we're heading into will work.
0: Yes, certainly. And I, I have taken you up on that offer previously. I got a five, so I know I need to uh, sort of move my portfolio about. Um, well, and I need
1: uh, to tell you that my grades are very harsh. Uh, I have given, I believe, nine number one rankings in 35 years of ranking stocks. Uh, the last number one ranking I gave was in 2015 or 2016. It was Ivanhoe Mines. Uh, I could buy three world-class deposits, the Platte Reef, Komoa, Kakula, and Kapushi, uh, backed up by the most successful mining financier of my epoch, Robert Friedland, selling for 63 cents a share with 93 cents a share cash in it. Uh, That will give you some indication of what is required for a one ranking.
0: Yeah, certainly. Um, Rick, thank you again. It's a pleasure having you on the podcast again. And I'm sure, and I know our audience would be grateful with your, um, your knowledge and wisdom. Um, how can they, How can people that are listening reach out to you? Um, obviously, I know you're across. If you put your name in Google, I know people can come across you. Um, but the, I just wondered if there's anywhere they can follow you.
1: The easiest place to find me is to email me. Uh, my email address, my personal email address uh, is rick at ruleinvestmentmedia, all one word, ruleinvestmentmedia.com.
0: Okay. We'll put that in the show notes below. Um, if you're watching on the, the video YouTube channel, um, you can obviously see that below. Appreciate if you can share and like this episode. Um, people that are listening on the podcast, appreciate again, if you can share amongst the, the mining community, um, not just people, like I said, boots on the ground, but other people within the mining industry that you know that have an interest and want to invest um, because obviously, as Rick said, we are in a, um, a bull market and um, there's certainly a lot of uh, interest and what going to be more interest as the uh, as time goes on. So I really appreciate your time, Rick. Um, good to speak to you again. Um, and until next time, happy mining.
1: Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via
0: the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.